Uh, in this month, we are starting a, uh, a new sermon series called, How Can I Know If I'm Really Saved? We're going to take some different angles on approaching this topic, and over this month, we're going to hear from a variety of different speakers. So I'm looking forward to learning and growing with you during this month. Today is more of an introduction to our theme as we try to cover in a big question, how do I know if I'm really saved? And then next week, we'll go deeper into the question as we can look at, as we look at the question, how can I know if I'm really saved if I have all these doubts? Well, last week here at MCBC, we had a remarkable experience of witnessing changed lives. It happened as we watched new believers standing in water and in their act of baptism, they entered into a new way of life. And for those of you who were baptized last week, I want you to remember your baptism. And maybe for others of us too, if it's been uh, months or maybe even years or decades since you've been baptized, I want you to remember your baptism day. In the Gospel of Mark, we discover that, that right after Jesus was baptized, the heavens were torn open and the Spirit descended on Jesus like a dove. And the Father's voice announces Jesus as his priceless Son. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It's as if the Father is saying, Dear world, here he is. The psychiatrist Scott Peck said that the main thing that brought him to Christian faith was reading the stories of Jesus and being irresistibly drawn to him. Here's what he wrote. I was absolutely thunderstruck by the reality of the man found in the Gospels. I realized that this Jesus was so real that no one could have made him up. I began to suspect that the gospel writers, instead of being myth-makers and embellishers, were in fact extremely accurate reporters. Look at the gospel stories, and you'll see that there are two times that the Father speaks directly to the world. And both times, the Father says the same thing, Focusing attention on Jesus, first at his baptism, and then secondly at his transfiguration, but saying in essence the same thing, this is my priceless son. I am deeply pleased with him. It's like God is saying, if you want to get to know anything about me, then please get to know my son. For those of you who have been baptized, for those of you who have a desire to know God better, I pray that you will hear this voice of God speaking intimately with you, not just today, but every day. You are my beloved child. I am deeply pleased with you. That's the Father's voice to you. Remembering your baptism means remembering that you are God's dearly loved child. Following Jesus in baptism is a simple action with profound meaning. It's an opening act of obedience to Jesus Christ. 
And through it, you and I enter into this pathway of discipleship. The early stages of the Christian life can start out with great enthusiasm and a sense of God's close presence. For me, as a teenager growing up in a Christian home, I remember really struggling. Was I really a Christian? Others around me seemed so sure about the faith that they had, but but I didn't quite feel that way. And the one thing that did help me was being able to talk with others about this. A few years later, as a student at Bible College, a fellow student honestly talked with me. A student in Bible College, wrestling if their salvation was real. And then a few years later, as a young adult, I still remember my Uncle Bill telling me about giving his life to Christ. He was given a key verse of scripture to memorize, and he still remembered it. But he wondered if his step to follow Jesus was really real. So many decades after his baptism, he wondered if it really counted. So he told me that he and his friend got down on their knees once again and prayed a sinner's prayer. I think he did this more than once. I admired his sincerity of seeking God. I admired his desire to make things right with God. But if I could have that conversation again, I think that I would have wanted to think with him and to talk with him more about this word called salvation. And I'd like to encourage you to talk to somebody else if you wonder if you're a Christian. You don't have to keep this to yourself or pretend that you can't share this. One thing about being the church is that we need to learn to carry one another's burdens. I want to think with you about six insights from Scripture that have helped me to think about salvation and have brought a reassurance to my soul. And I pray that this too will help you if you've ever asked this question. So the first sentence or the first insight is this, simply these words, salvation takes time. Salvation takes time. Maybe you know the passage of scripture from uh, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, so that no one can boast. Here's what's so beautiful about this. God's healing, God's saving work, is never something that I can earn. The more we look at ourselves, we have to acknowledge how we have not obeyed or trusted or loved God enough. It's not our faithfulness that saves us, but it's the faithfulness of Jesus. When God saved us, he came to rescue us from this chaotic mess that we have in our lives. His saving work is to make you whole. By our simple faith, we trust in him. The step of becoming a Christian is to realize that I desperately need God's saving work And without God's grace, I would be helplessly lost. Salvation is a beautiful word. 
Salvation helps us today to live with peace, to look back on our past without guilt, and to look to the future with confidence. There's an old story of a girl who asked the pastor if she really could know that she was saved, and the pastor said, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. I am being saved from the power of sin. And one day I will be saved from the presence of sin. It's all a reminder that God is not finished with me yet. Salvation takes time. The same Apostle Paul who tells us that we have been saved by grace through faith, this beautiful promise, also tells us in the letter to Philippians in chapter 2 that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling now. And then Paul also writes in the book of Romans chapter 5 that we will be saved in the future. I have been saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. After we trust in Christ for salvation, we need the steady saving work of Christ to rescue us from our despair, our anger, our fear, our bitterness, our ego, our lust, and our greed. What we need is a transformation of our character. And what can change us is not just a matter of trying a little harder or to say that we'll do better next time, but what's critical is our abiding in him. Salvation is not just about praying a prayer to go to heaven. It's about following Jesus with a fervent pursuit because this is the most fulfilling life ever. There's a teacher who wisely reminds us, remember, salvation isn't just about you getting into heaven. It's about getting heaven into you. Aren't you hopeful that God's desire is to get a taste of heaven into you? Right now, changing you with more hope and joy and peace. Salvation takes time. The second sentence is this, is don't be surprised about trouble. Have you noticed in the Gospels that immediately after the baptism of Jesus, the very next thing that happens is the temptation of Jesus. Wait a minute, shouldn't Jesus at least just sail from one victory to the next? Immediately after such an intimate experience of God, then came testing. Following Jesus does not bypass temptation. If he was tempted, you will be too. There will come moments when you'll be tempted to think that you are not really loved by God. You might get caught up with the worries of today. You might start thinking that you must do something impressive to gain God's love. And if you could do something better or look more impressive, then you might be okay. But if Jesus encountered a spiritual battle that would, dis that would tempt him to be distracted from the Father's love for him. Don't be surprised at your own spiritual battle. Then there may come times when you are confused and you say, well, I no longer feel like I did when I first became a Christian. I don't feel like I used to 
then does that mean that I'm not a Christian anymore? Maybe God is close to others, but has he now abandoned me? Have I done something really wrong? And the answer to this is no, no. God is growing you. God is training you. You are learning to love God, not just for what he gives you, but to love God for who he is. You're learning to love God, not just because he protects you from every trial, but because you are learning that God takes those whom he loves through deep and dark valleys. Jesus does not say to his follower, I will instantly remove you from trouble. But Jesus does say in John 16, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I don't know what your troubles are, but I do know that you've got them. Health problems, work struggles, wounded relationships, fears of the future. The God-centered life does not deny the reality of everyday problems. Don't be surprised about trouble. This actually kind of leads me to a side question. If God loves us so much, maybe he allows troubles now, but why doesn't he just let everybody into heaven? In preparing for this message, I was reading about two very different images of heaven. One, first one is, here's one description of heaven. It's the divine pleasure factory where anybody could be happy if they could just get in. Two, here's another description of heaven. Heaven is the redeemed new creation in which God will be impossible to avoid. What's your picture of heaven? It's not surprising that the second definition is the Bible's picture of heaven. Heaven, the presence of God. So here's the question. Why would we want heaven later if we do not want to grow more now into the image of Jesus? Why would we want heaven later if we don't want to walk with Jesus now? The third sentence that I'd like to share with you is this, grow in grace. It's a simple sentence, but it's powerful. Grace is something you can grow in. Grace is a wonderful gift that God gives to us. That's what we learn from Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you have been saved. Martin Luther, the teacher of the church who lived 500 years ago, had said something, had something very interesting to say about grace. To be convinced in our hearts that we have forgiveness of sins and have peace with God by grace alone is the hardest thing. Why should this teacher of the faith tell us that receiving grace is the hardest thing? I think it's because we are these hard-working self-achievers who think that we should earn our way to God. And because we have a hard time receiving grace, the Bible has a holy repetition of God's grace. Grace is needed at every step, not just at the beginning of the journey. As the Apostle Peter concludes his short New Testament letter, he says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3.18 Somehow we are urged to grow in grace, to grow in our capacity of depending and counting on God's power in us. Grace does say, you cannot earn this favor with God. But grace does not say, you don't need to make any effort in living the Christian life. Yes, grow in grace, but recognize that there is an effort in discipleship. And this third or the fourth sentence I'd like to share with you is this. Grace and discipleship work together. Maybe you are familiar with Jesus' majestic words at the end of Matthew's gospel. They are well worth hearing and memorizing. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, with your baptism, you are signed up for discipleship. You are adopted into a new family. You are mysteriously united with the triune God. And Jesus continues, And teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Dale Bruner paraphrases Jesus' words like this. Work with people over a process of time in the simple educational process of teaching Jesus. We don't expect that those who are new in faith instantly in one day come glowing with spirituality. This word, make disciples, pictures students sitting around a teacher more than it does penitents kneeling around an altar. When Jesus talks about teaching them, it's a slow word. Being a disciple means that we have signed up to be in the school of learning from Jesus. There are so many people who dedicate themselves to a cause. You know the name Tom Brady. For those of you who are football fans, know that he has the nickname The Goat meaning the greatest of all time. He retired some months ago and now has indicated that he's coming back for his 23rd season. And his training routine is overwhelming from his sleeping schedule to his diet to his stretching and strength conditioning and practicing with the team. And he says there are no shortcuts. He said, You better be willing to pay the price in advance if you are truly interested in greatness. Pablo Casals, the famous cellist, when he was in his 80s, and when he was considered the best in the world, he was asked, why do you keep practicing for hours every day? And his reply was, because I think I'm getting better. We are inspired by those who pour great intensity to things that do not last. How much more can we be inspired by spiritual training? 1 Timothy 4.7, Paul writes, Train yourself to be godly. 
we are urged to train ourselves in spiritual disciplines. We train ourselves um, in living in God's presence every day. And we are steadily transformed. Over the past number of weeks, we've heard messages. Uh, we've heard a message on spiritual disciplines. And really, this is a way of growing in grace as we develop these spiritual disciplines. When you disciple people, when we disciple people, take your time with them. Bring them along gently. Teach them with an ever-increasing loyalty to Jesus' commands, because grace and discipleship work together. Fifth sentence I'd like to share with you is this, is simply this, you can know. You can know. You can know that you're a follower of Jesus. You can know that you are saved. There are different kinds of knowing, though. One kind of knowing is a mathematical knowing or a scientific knowing. You do the test in the laboratory to get the facts right. This kind of knowledge works some of the time, but not all of the time. There's another kind of knowing that's relational. You make a friendship, and then you count on that friend. 1 John 5.13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what John was writing about with these words. John wrote these words so that we don't have to live lives of anxiety. This new life, this eternal life, is something that we begin to experience even here and now as we trust in the one who loved us and died for us. So as we grow to trust Christ with our today, we also can have the assurance to trust him with our future. You can know that you have eternal life. And that's why John writes this in his letter um, to his followers. The sixth sentence is this, and I hope it ties it together in some way. I pray that you will make your home in God's love. Jesus starts his ministry in a river among sinners and ended his earthly ministry on a cross between two thieves. And now he sends his Holy Spirit to be present among two or three who call out to him and meet together in his name. And he said, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. John fourteen twenty three. Are you captivated by this? Not only are we baptized into the name of the triune God, not only have we been saved by grace, but now here is this promise that the triune God makes his home with us. Sheila and I have had some moves in our married life. After getting married at Dufferin Street Baptist Church in Toronto, we traveled to a suburb of Chicago for me to complete a master's degree. 
After that, we lived a lot of our life in London, Ontario. And it was home for a long time until we moved to Mississauga. But what has made a move much easier is that a move was less about a place than a person. To set up our place here in Mississauga and to make it home is home because it's with the people that I love. That I came here with with Sheila and with Miriam. And when you're home, you belong. It's a beautiful desire to spend each day in the presence of God, making our home in God's love. To hear his voice, you are my beloved child. With you, I am well pleased. Following Jesus becomes more than making a temporary detour in our lives. Jesus asks us, he urges us to rearrange all before him. Jesus is both the way and our destination. He is both the journey and our home. And then we hold on to his promise. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. My prayer is that you might make your home in God's love and know, to know that you are God's beloved child. May you remember his goodness even as you think back on your baptism and as we prepare ourselves for communion, may we remember him once again. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you are the Holy One who loves us. We thank you that you are the one who speaks to us words of assurance when our faith feels weak. We thank you for the assurance that we have, for by grace we have been saved through faith. Well, Lord, our trust is in you. Our trust is in you knowing that you have freed us from our past, knowing that you are rescuing us in the present, and knowing us that you will save us in the future. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.